Welcome to the Global Challenges podcast by One Young World, a global nonprofit with a mission to create the next generation of more responsible and effective leadership. I'm One Young World co-founder Kate Robertson, and you'll hear from activists and world leaders as they delve into five of the most pressing topics that you, our community of change makers, have identified. This week's episode focuses on the topic of rights and freedoms. We found that 50% of young leaders report that their civil liberties and human rights have been violated. With the insurgence of protests and calls for racial justice from Black Lives Matter to increasing concerns surrounding digital rights and privacy online, we ask how can we defend our fundamental rights? On a mission to answer this question and more is this week's host, Jamal Campbell. Jamal is a One Young World ambassador. He is the creative and digital producer for Milkshake, the children's morning blog on Channel 5. He is also a volunteer for One Young World as media consultant, which he's been doing for the past six years, advising on the filming and recording of our material. Bill Browner is the founder and CEO of Hemetish Capital Management, which was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005, when Bill was denied entry into the country and declared a threat to national security as a result of his battles against corporate corruption. Following the murder of his lawyer, Sergei Minitsky, who was tortured for 358 days and killed in custody at the age of 37 in November 2009, Bill Browner has been leading a global campaign to end human rights violations through the Minitsky Act, which freezes the assets of human rights abusers. The act has been passed in the US, UK, Canada, amongst other countries. Bill, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. You're the author of the best-selling book, Red Notice, which focuses on your time spent in Russia and your fight for justice. You went from running Hermitage Capital Management, the largest foreign investor in Russia, to being, in your words, Putin's number one enemy. Can you discuss how your story started and evolved? So I um, come from an unusual family background. My grandfather was the leader of the Communist Party of America. And so in my rebellion from my family, I decided to become a capitalist. And I went to Stanford Business School and graduated the year that the Berlin Wall was coming down. And I said to myself, if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has just come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Russia. And um, that's what I set out to do. And, and eventually I succeeded. I, I ended up setting up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund in Russia to invest in the Russian stock market. The fund was wildly successful for some period of time. Then I encountered a real challenge, which was the um, Russian oligarchs were basically stealing money out the back door from most of the companies that I was investing in. And I needed to um, stop them. And so I came up with this interesting idea, which was that um, if I could name and shame them, if I could expose how they went about the stealing, then uh, I might be able to stop it. And so I started to do these, what I call stealing analysis of Russian companies, where we'd analyze how the stealing was happening. And then we would share that with the international media and we would shame them. And it was at a, a very weird time in Russia's evolution when Putin had just come to power. 
And Putin, who I've never met then or since, he was fighting with the same guys that I was fighting with. The oligarchs were stealing power from him at the same time as they were stealing money from me. And, um, and every time I would publicize one of their scams, Putin would step in, not because he liked me or wanted to do any, help me in any way, but because there's this expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And, and so Putin was stepping into all of these conflicts that I was having with these oligarchs. And for a while, it was really wonderful. I thought that Russia was getting better and cleaner and everything was going well. But then Putin decided one day to win his war with the oligarchs by arresting the richest man in Russia, a guy named Michael Hordakovsky. He arrested him off his private jet in Siberia, put him on trial, and allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia on trial sitting in a cage. And at that point, the rest of the uh, oligarchs went to Putin and said, what do we have to do so we don't sit in a cage? And uh, he said 50%. And that was the moment that Putin became the richest man in the world. And that was the moment that, that I was no longer welcome in Russia. I've actually been listening to the book and I found it fascinating. At any point when you were there, did you ever wonder how you got onto Putin's radar? Because um, you've, you've just mentioned you've never met him um, to this day, but all of a sudden you're in his radar and he's, from, from what I was reading from the book, he was just going for you. Why do you think that was? Because I know he kind of set an example with one of the oligarchs. Um, why do you think he just went, Browder is the one that I need to go after? Well, so Putin is a guy who, um, he can't micromanage the country. It's a huge country. It's, it's like 11 time zones. It's the largest landmass in the world. So he's got to manage by symbols. And so with Michael Hordakovsky, the biggest oligarch, he takes the biggest oligarch out and the rest of them come in line. And so here he had this situation where he was now a business partner with the oligarchs. I was continuing to expose all of his corruption. And it was not only, and I was exposing corruption at some of the biggest companies that he had an interest in, in Russia, Gazprom and which is the biggest gas company in the world, and another company called Surgut Naftagas, which is one of the biggest oil companies in the world. And for him, it was painful for two reasons. One, because these were companies that he had interest in, and I was you know, putting their dirty laundry out for everyone to see. But perhaps even more importantly than that, he really hated the idea that I might, by what I was doing, other people might follow and do similar types of things. He didn't want that to happen. And so he wanted to make an example out of me. And in the same way as he did with Hordakovsky, but if he can take the largest foreign investor in their country, kick him out, and then do other, other terrible things, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, that's a way of, of accomplishing both the objective of getting me to stop going after these companies he has an interest in, but also in showing anybody who might even think about doing what I was doing that it's not a good idea. Approximately 50% of Wanyang World ambassadors surveyed reported that their civil liberties and human rights had been violated. Why do you think this conversation is important right now? And what do you think we should be doing to improve this? Well, you know, the problem with the world is that um, it's an unfair world. And not that many countries are have democracy and rule of law. You know, if we live in the United Kingdom or in Europe or even Canada... You know, there, there's democracy and there's rule of law, but in many, many countries, there is no democracy and there is no rule of law. And, and when you have that, then the governments, um, which are often illegitimate, do things to keep themselves, the dictators or the autocrats do things to keep themselves in power. One of the things they do is anybody who threatens them, they punish them and they punish them in ways which sometimes can be truly horrible. And we've seen that happen. I saw it happen in Russia with the, um, arrest, torture, and murder of my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, 
and we've seen that happen in Saudi Arabia and China um, and Venezuela. And I mean, I could just go on and on and on. I mean, there's just so many examples of really, really bad stuff that people do all over the world. And, 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 and it's probably been happening forever, but all of a sudden now we know about it. And, and uh, as we know about it, we can do something about it. And um, that's one of my missions is to create consequences for these people. In 2012, the Minitsky Act bill was passed by the U.S. Congress and signed into law. Can you speak to the significance of this legislation and the progress that has come out of this result? And just give us a little back history as to how the whole act came into place. So after Putin decided to make me an example, I was expelled from Russia. I was declared a threat to national security. My offices were raided in Moscow, and I hired a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to investigate. Sergey was a 35-year-old lawyer working for an American law firm. He investigated it. He discovered that the people who committed this um, raid did, it, did so in order to perpetrate a very complicated financial fraud in which they stole $230 million of taxes that I paid to the Russian government from the Russian government. He exposed it, and in retaliation, he was arrested he was tortured for 358 days, and he was killed by eight riot guards with rubber batons 358 days after he entered the jail. And I've made it my life's work since he was murdered to go after the people who killed him to make sure they face justice. And we couldn't get any justice in Russia. Um, Vladimir Putin got involved personally in circling the wagons and exonerating everybody. And so I came up with this idea, which was that if we can't get justice in Russia, we, need, we should get it outside of Russia. And I looked at this murder, the torture and murder of Sergei Magnitsky, and uh, it was not driven by ideology or religion. It was driven by money. The people who, who stole the $230 million killed him to cover it up. And I said to myself, we may not be able to prosecute these people in the West for torture and murder, but we can certainly and stop them from traveling to the West, and we can stop them from spending their ill-gotten gains and investing in the West. And I took this idea to Washington, and I told the story of Sergei Magnitsky to Senator John McCain, the late Senator John McCain, who is a Republican, and, uh, and Senator Benjamin Cardin, who is a Democrat. And I said, can we freeze these people's assets and ban their visas, the people who killed Sergei? And these two senators said yes, and that became known as the Magnitsky Act. And um, after they was originally set up just to go after the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky, but then they realized that um, they were onto something much bigger than one case, and they widened it out to apply to all human rights abusers in Russia, not just the people who killed Magnitsky. And this was at a time when there was really a whole, almost entire consensus in Washington about Russia. And when it went for a vote in the Senate, it passed 92 to 4. Um, it passed uh, with 89% of the House of Representatives, and it became a federal law on December 14, 2012, and it freezes the assets and bans the visas of human rights violators in Russia. The Magnitsky Act has since expanded. It no longer just applies to Russia. It applies to all human rights abusers all over the world. Uh, the legislation is now called the Global Magnitsky Act. Um, it's also expanded beyond the United States. Um, it now exists in Canada, Great Britain, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Kosovo. And... Um, Hopefully soon, uh, Australia and the European Union will also sign up. As you just mentioned, it, it has been implemented in multiple countries um, around the world. And is there anything else we can do? I think it's a total game changer. And the reason I think so is that 
the Magnitsky Act doesn't go after countries, it goes after people. And so it's always been really hard to get Western governments to do anything against terrible atrocities that happen in Russia or China or other places, because they say, well, you know, we need these countries for trade, we need them for diplomacy, we can't just cut them off. And that was always the excuse for doing nothing. And so I show up with this new piece of legislation, which says, you know what, we can, you can do both. You can do something about it and you can continue trading and having diplomatic relations because it's not going after the country, it's going after individuals. And in doing so, it's been a total game changer because all of a sudden, Western governments aren't so scared to do it. And it's also very interesting because these dictatorships don't know what to do about it. And so if, if we sanction a bunch of Russian human rights abusers, and we say you can't use the US banking system and you can't travel to the US or to Great Britain or Canada or wherever, that really hurts them because they like to travel to the U.S. They like to like buy condos in Miami and, and uh, you know, nice townhouses in Belgrave Square in London. But there's nothing they can do about it. They can't respond reciprocally because it's not as if a bunch of British or American politicians want to go on vacation to Siberia and keep their money at Sparebank in Russia. And so it's, it creates this situation where we have all the power in this thing. And what's even more interesting is that, so the people that, that are sanctioned, it really does ruin their lives. They can no longer open bank accounts anywhere. They're, they can't travel anywhere. It's just not good for them at all. But it's even better in a certain way for all the people who haven't yet been sanctioned because it creates this sort of climate of fear among human rights abusers that maybe one day their actions will catch up with them. As an experienced investor, do you take civil liberties like freedom of press into account when looking to investment in regions or in countries? I think that if you don't have freedom of the press, if you don't have rule of law, and you don't have property rights, you can really do nothing proper business-wise in the world. It's an absolute prerequisite. I mean, so look, look at China, for example. So China is a dictatorship. And if you go and invest there and, and someone rips you off, what's your recourse? What, what can you do about it? Uh, the answer is nothing because, um, you know, and, but however, you, you know, if you get ripped off here in the UK, you know, you can uh, go to court, you can go to the newspapers, you can do all these things. And there's no sort of central authority that's going to decide, you know, who's right and who's wrong. The truth will decide who's right and who's wrong. And, and, uh, and this is like hard learning from Russia that, you know, I don't want to get involved in, in places where, there, where there's no free press and no rule of law. What advice do you have for our community of investors who are dealing with human rights violations and are trying to create change through legislation? Well, I think that the Magnitsky Act um, is a tool that's now been created, which can be applied towards human rights abusers anywhere in the world, which freezes their assets and bans their visas. And anybody who's witnessed uh, an atrocity or fighting against torturers and murderers, they can take the, the evidence and they can take it to the United States government, to the British government, to the Canadian government, and say, I think you should sanction these people under the Magnitsky Act. It's all, you know, all the, I did the heavy lifting of getting the law in place, and now it needs to be used by everybody. And I, and I, feel, I feel wonderful that there's this tool available for victims, and, and it's, um, it's a powerful tool and, and uh, one that, that everybody should embrace. Um, what gives you hope for the future? Well, I, I think that um, the young people of the world, your cohort, people with, um, who are idealistic, um, people who are ambitious, people who understand right from wrong, and people who are ready to take some personal risk and make sacrifice to, uh, um, to try to make the world a better place. It's often I see 
too many people my age becoming cynical and jaded, but um, I always love being in touch with young people who are idealistic and energetic and, and want to make the world a better place. I'm thrilled to be joined by Efwa Hirsch. Efwa Hirsch is a journalist, writer, broadcaster and filmmaker. Her current projects include a six-part series with Samuel L. Jackson, a major BBC series about African art and another about whiteness, both forthcoming. She regularly writes, reports and speaks on international current affairs and has published two best-selling books, British on Race, Identity and Belonging, winner of the Royal Society of Literature Jailwood Prize and equal to everything about the UK Supreme Court. Efwa was a judge on last year's Booker Prize and is currently the Wallace Annenberg Chair of Journalism at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. She's also a judge on One Young World's Politician of the Year Award panel. Therefore, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Jamal. Through your book, British, you're writing for the likes of The Guardian. You continue to influence Britain to challenge the status quo. Can you tell us about the work you are most proud of? I'm really fortunate in that, especially since I've been self-employed and worked across the media as a writer and forecaster, I've been able to only focus on projects that I believe in and that I feel add something. And I realize that really is a privilege and um, it's one I don't take for granted. I think my goal in life is really to educate and also encourage honesty in terms of our history as countries and societies and also how unfairness and injustice manifests and our structures. And so anything that I do that increases an understanding or an awareness of that or even gives people a language to talk about it in a more informed way makes me proud. I think the thing I'm proudest of is my book because I wrote it really to reach my younger self. When I was growing up in Britain as a mixed race girl, black girl of Ghanaian heritage, I found it really difficult to reconcile my understanding of my African heritage with the ways in which people saw me and talked to me in the society I was growing up in. And the older and more professional I got, the more I saw that dissonance manifested in so many parts of public life. And I just had to work so hard to make sense of it personally and then to find the courage to speak about it publicly. So through my book, I really wanted to see if I could find a way of using the work and the struggle that I had had to make it easier for a new generation to navigate those issues. And since my book came out, I have had young people in quite a similar situation to me when I was their age say that it's really helped them and that it has made it easier for them to have certain conversations and make sense of the world around them. And that, I can't even communicate how proud that makes me. And it makes all of the things I went through worthwhile if they helped me become a person who can just make it easier for someone else. So that is something I'm really proud of. Yeah, I get that. I, I'm, I'm one of people I was quite fortunate. I lived in Ghana for about 10 years. There was a part of me where I wanted to express being Ghanaian and being Jamaican into the way that I work and stuff like that and being very comfortable talking about it. I very, I, there was some stages where I was quite shy not to talk about my heritage and stuff like that because it was difficult. But now I like, I embrace. It can be quite difficult. And I should have guessed that you were Ghanaian because you said my name and pronounced it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah so living, living there has been, was, was great and learning that and coming back and then trying and then forcing myself to bring out my traditions and wearing my Ghanaian tops at work and being proud of it. And some people look at it and be like, oh, that's a nice sort of people are like, why are you wearing that to work? I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's just a top. It's a hot, it's hot weather. This is what I'd wear in Ghana anyway. So I do get that. Um, but I think it's also those things, they might seem like small things or even superficial being able to wear clothes that reflect your cultural heritage. But actually I think they speak to something really profound about the ways in which 
whiteness and European society and Eurocentric culture has been completely normalized and all other cultural traditions have been relegated to the status of other or exotic or um, tribal. All these words that arise from that imperial history of really relegating other cultures and categorizing people as inferior, they're black. And so I think that's why, you know, recently there was um, a lot of conversation about what it's like to be black at work and hearing really senior, powerful black people say how difficult it is for them to be their authentic self at work. Reading statistics about how many black people in European countries feel they cannot be their full self in the workplace. And I think that's actually pretty profound. If you feel that you pay a penalty because of who you are and what matters to you, just to be able to work and do your job, then it gives you a lens into how much unfairness is still at work in our lives. Yeah, I think a lot of people do that. Sometimes it's... I was before that's been happening quite recently. I was speaking to one of my colleagues, and I was saying it's we when you come into work. Sometimes it's quite exhausting when you leave because you have to put on a different mask because you can't be yourself. And I have now had this. No, I've I've now come to the realization that I'm not wearing that mask anymore. If I come into work, I'm going to be me, and you can love it or like it, but it's, that's me. This is going to be my event, so I'm not going to wear a mask for anyone anymore. Um, just to fit into the bubble that you that we have in the workplace because it's exhausting you you wear this mask you try and work your way up and try and be someone that you're not just to fit into that environment and I'm just like no I'm not doing that anymore I don't want to wear a mask I'm going to wear my Ghanaian tops I'm going to listen to my Ghanaian Jamaican music in the office I want to be me in a a, a professional way but I'm just going I'm going to be me and it's a virtuous circle as well, because, you know, other black people, if they see you doing that, we feel empowered and emboldened to do the same. And I think the reverse has been true. When I was growing up, the very few black people I saw in positions of influence or power almost felt as if they were being forced to downplay their difference and kind of assimilate. And I put quotation marks around the word assimilate because it's a really problematic concept, the idea that if you come from a different culture or um, heritage, you have to try and become like white people you know that's the value that we've that's the word that we've used as a positive model for, in, for immigration become like everyone who was there already become a cultural fit don't become a cultural ad and i think that once people start rejecting that and being their authentic selves it makes it easy for other people to do the same and it's important to say that it's not good for anyone when you can't be your authentic self it's not good for white people or it's not good for the majority when you have to wear a mask because it's depriving everyone of the opportunity to be honest and understand the society we live in so i think these systems have actually worked to kind of dumb everyone down but the point is that black people people from ethnic minority backgrounds have borne a disproportionate burden of that like you said it's exhausting it's draining you're the one that has to wear the mask and before you've even done your work or come up with your ideas or performed what you're there to perform you've had to deal with that psychologically draining demand of just having to be something you're not or trying to hide what you are and I think that it's wrong on so many levels that we felt pressure to do that um but it's also bad for everyone Twitter Instagram and other platforms are being used increasingly as a source of truth how do you think this can help shape the message I think it's hugely powerful it helps you self-educate because if you follow people who are into knowledge and truth you can learn It helps people organize. It helps people in different countries, different generations, different focuses to actually coordinate their work and their energy and become a movement. And I think Black Lives Matter is a movement that has thrived on social media 
And actually, it links to Black Twitter in general, this whole phenomenon of Black people who've not been allowed visibility or amplification in society, just creating it for themselves on social media and being able to organise this in such a way to actually have a disproportionately visible and vocal presence. I think that's really powerful. Um, so there are huge downsides to social media, as we all know, but I think that if you are strategic about how you use it, it can really be a powerful tool to organize. So obviously there were movements and protest movements before social media and they achieved incredible change, but we can do more and more quickly. The, the challenge that we have is not to get distracted because that's the flip side of social media. And also when you have such disparate movements because they're just springing up organically all over the world, uh, it can be harder to actually focus around the cause or work out a plan. And I think that is the challenge. Um, there has been consistent rhetoric about fake news in the media. How do you think this can affect messaging and how would you recommend people educate themselves about it? As a journalist and also someone who teaches journalism, it's obviously a huge concern and it goes hand in hand really with the root cause, which is the loss of trust in the mainstream media. And I actually, as a journalist who works across the mainstream media, you know, TV, film, print and audio, I believe that it is important to have media that is professional and has integrity, of course. But I, I'm also not afraid to criticise the mainstream media because I think that one of the reasons that there's been a loss of trust is because the media hasn't reflected the societies that it reports to. You know, it hasn't. If you go to newsrooms in the UK, they don't represent the societies they're in. They, they've, the gatekeepers of news media have remained white, male, privileged, and Again, that's an opportunity for social media because I see a lot of people who've been excluded by traditional media just creating their own platforms. And I think that that is a necessary form of accountability to the mainstream media. But the thing about mainstream media is that it's professionalized and um, has processes that check facts and that can um, verify information. And once you kind of go into social media and you go into the wild west of what's out there online it can be that much harder to trust the information you see and with the, with the constant advent of um, new technology you know things like deep fakes that are able to make videos that really look real that journalists are at risk of using as sources you can start to see how the mainstream media could even be infiltrated by fake news so I think that it's a worrying time and it's for journalism to up our game to, to actually include people from different backgrounds and experiences in the mainstream media to acknowledge that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive you can have social media new media and you can continue to have mainstream media and that everybody who cares about the truth needs to be vigilant about fake news and I'd like to see that kind of acceptance that the world is changing and that we need to be equipped to deal with it. One young world, young leaders often have messages that they want to share about inequalities they face and continue to face. In a world where important news can get eclipsed or forgotten, what would you recommend to these ambassadors and how could they get their messages out there? The strength of this moment is that everybody can have a platform. Everybody can put their message out. Everybody can have a voice in a way that was inconceivable when I was first exploring journalism and storytelling. I think my message to people would be, find your thing, you know, find your thing that you care about so much, you do it for free, that you're passionate about, and develop that as your medium and use that also as a way of being creative in telling stories about the injustice and the unfairness that you experience in your life. And if you kind of go deeper into your authentic self and your authentic interests in a way, no one can compete with you because no one else is you. 
Um, so always try to find out what it is about you that you are into, that you can offer. And then you always add value. And I think once you add value, you get an audience. That happens naturally. The problem is when you try to be other people or you try to be what you think people want you to be or say what you think they want to hear. And in my life, I've experienced personally that the minute I freed myself from that pressure, and I know it's difficult because we've all been conditioned to kind of want approval and acceptance. But the minute you free yourself from that, then you become somebody who can actually add value in the world. Um, and ironically, even when you think you're saying things that people are going to find very difficult and might be hostile to, actually people can see when you're being honest and they will relate to it even if they have a different experience. So there's, there's really no bad outcome from just being authentic and kind of working out your truth and your message. And if you care about equality, then that will always be part of what you do. And our final question, what gives you hope for the future? I feel a growing impatience with bad leadership with untruths with unfairness i think that we're becoming less tolerant of the, the generations centuries of abject unfairness that we've become used to and i think that really does give me hope i see people calling things out that a few weeks ago were acceptable you know in the mainstream and now suddenly people are vocalizing how wrong they are and that's changed really, really quickly. And I think that's really positive. And that's what we need is just that clarity that those things that you always thought were kind of wrong, you can might maybe put your finger on it. Now there's a language for it. It's being articulated. It's being said. That voice is being amplified. People are organizing around trying to actually target unfair experiences, structures, systems. And that is really positive. So I love the energy that's being created at the moment. And it often stems from tragedy, you know, and that's the really sad thing. It takes sometimes really extreme, tragic moments to galvanize people. But you can only make sense of the atrocities you witness in this world if you use them to try and force change that is good. And that is what always gives me hope. Sham Jav is a political scientist and journalist based in Berlin. She has a newsletter called What Happened Last Week, which explains exactly that. What's the latest on climate change all around the world? How are we all fighting for gender equality? With her universal approach to news, she believes we must all think and act more globally because we're the first generation that really can. Sham, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. You're a political scientist based in Berlin, Germany. Um, you have a weekly email magazine, which is called What Happened Last Week, which has a readership over 10,000 people. Tell us about how you started it. It started six years ago, actually, as a blog for close friends and family. And a vision and mission of that blog was to just include them more in the important debates that we had going on in Germany. I wanted them to make it, I wanted to make it fun and easy to follow the news and understand what um, was happening and to quickly form an opinion, a nuanced opinion on it. And uh, I you know, coming from the political science background, I I knew, I sensed that, you know, a lot of my close friends, a lot of my family members, they just hadn't, they just, they had this small, they had this like fear of interacting with the news um, in the same way that I had been interacting with it. And it's just because of the small, you know, change in time investment that I had spent. You know, I, I invested so much more time 
in studying governments, studying the histories of countries. And I, from the political science perspective, I was looking at the news as it was like this political thriller. And whenever I was watching the news, it was like, oh, do you know what happened in Ethiopia? Do you know what happened in Burundi? Do you know what happened in Ecuador? And this is why it's so interesting because this and this and here, and here are 30 plus sources on this. And you can, if you want to be as educated on this, you can, you can choose to do that. But if you don't want to be, it's also okay if you just read this little bit piece of summary. And um, you know, I tried to be as transparent as I could um, to also put sources in context to kind of like be this, you know, the kind of the friend that just updates you on what's going on. <laughs> that friend that you have that you turn to and you're like, I don't even I don't understand what what's what's that about? Could you explain to me why that is important? For example, like what's happening in Serbia right now? And what's, why should I care about what, what happened 25 years ago in Bosnia? And, you know, and, and questions like that. And I wanted, yeah, and I wanted to offer my skill set and expertise in such a way. And, um, and then from that small blog for close friends and family, it turned into um, a newsletter at some point and more and more readers signed up because it was recommended more and more. It was this like, yeah, it was, I became the, the email friend for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember I, I subscribed to it about the same time, six years ago and I've been a subscriber ever since. And I've loved the way it's a short burst of information, but you have that responsibility because you give you the link and say, if you want to learn more about this, here is the link. Uh, we're going to jump onto the next question. Approximately 50% of One Young World Ambassador surveyed report that civil liberties and human rights are being violated. Why do you think this conversation is important right now? And what do you think we should be doing to improve this? Well, the survey the survey at One Young World uh, also mirrors the result of the Freedom House report last year. Um, the Freedom House report actually found out that democracy and pluralism were under assault last year and this year. And most worrisome, I mean, we all know, is what's happening in the United States and in India and in China. For most importantly, like the world's two largest democracies, right? The United States and India. They're under assault because their leaders are driving populist agendas. Both leaders currently are increasingly, increasingly willing to break down checkpoints institutional checkpoints that are supposed to act as safeguards for democracy. And they continue to, to disregard the rights of critics, minorities, and just a very, very nationalist agendas. And as a result of these and other trends, of course, the Freedom House report found that 2019 was unfortunately the 14th year in a row that global freedom was decline was in decline. But as you know me, I'm an optimistic realist. So in the same sentence, I would also like to draw your attention to the fact that this doesn't mean that everyone on this planet is feeling less free. In fact, um, the, the report also found out that um, more um, 37 countries in the world say that they actually felt even freer than before. 37 countries said they felt even freer than before. And I think it's important that we don't lose sight of the good that also emphasis on also happens as we speak. 
And I believe this conversation is not, it's not just important right now. It has always been important and it will always remain important in the years to come. Because I think what a lot of people tend to forget is that you can easily, easily lose the rights you fought hard and long for if you don't pay close attention. One of the key questions we ask on this topic is how can we defend rights online and offline? Given your wide readership, do you have to be careful about what you write and say and how do you manage this? Right. So um, my readers, they come from more than 120 countries. And that means, you know, among those 120 countries, they have like a lot of different political systems. So you have democracies, you have quasi dictatorships, you have um, people coming from countries who are extremely, extremely worried about what they say and read online. And so as a, as a result, I also get requests from a lot of people um, reading the newsletter to cover topics for them, to cover topics that are dear to them, topics that if they were to say those things online on their own platforms, um, they might face persecution. I mean, people have been and still do get arrested just for what they say online. Cyber censorship is a global phenomenon. It's been part of our realities for a long, long time. Um, and it's not limited to websites being blocked. It's also, you know, governments are using sophisticated new technologies to silence, um, to spy on, to harass and attract critical voices. So in a way, I, I managed this um, I try by, by, by trying to raise awareness to the issues that affect my readers, you know, in my own way, it's a platform of more than 10,000 people who are very much interested and very excited about the world and who are very grateful for, um, you know, for, for reports that I'm, that I might, that, that might be underreported. Of course, I have to pay attention to, for example, like whenever I get a request from someone reading the newsletter and they say, well, this and this happened in, in the city that I live. And so of course I go and seek out organizations, local organizations that could either fact check this for me. I'm not saying I'm, I don't believe my readers. I'm saying I am very cautious of the type of information that I put out. I want there to be um, a lot more information just for my readers to dive deeper into, just for um, you know a basic form of verification. It's, um, it's, this, it's a responsibility that I feel that I have to exercise. I have to exercise that um, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that I feel like if I didn't do it, it would probably, um, it would probably harm my readers trust in me and my readers, um, yeah, confidence in the newsletter and that it was, um, that it was trying to stay objective, although I don't believe in objectivity, but that was trying to stay objective, um, but also at the same time to, to stand for a political cause. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to add another question. So when you're writing these articles, do you have to, because I know you, you, you create a summary of an article and then you give us the full, you give us a link to the full thing. So do you, are you very, 
um, careful in which sources and which newspapers you use um, to get your articles um, and stuff like that? And how do you choose which source is um, which source is a great source for you to take your content from or to create your newsletter? How do you go about doing that? Right. So in the newsletter, I don't summarize just one article. I summarize a debate, a discourse around one specific subject. For example, if you were to ask me about what was going on in Ethiopia right now, so I would give you, you know, the the perspective of you know how the government uh, funded media talks about it but i would also give you um let's say independent media organizations that i try that are covering the topic as well you were born in iraqi kurdistan but then moved with your family to germany can you talk us through this time and do you think it shaped your decision to work in government and journalism right I am very, very sure that it has shaped my decision to work in journalism. From where I come from, Iraqi Kurdistan, press freedom is something that doesn't exist at the moment, unfortunately. So freedom of expression is literally on the brink of extinction. You have murdered journalists there, like Budat Hussein or Kawa Germiani. That is a red line. Reporting on corruption in Iraqi Kurdistan sometimes. When you when you talk about corruption and then you involve members of the ruling party there, or you say, oh, this this corruption case has ties to the ruling Barzani family. That's impossible. Reporting on corruption and then involving the ruling party, that's impossible. And freelancers have little to no rights in Kurdistan. There is a lack of independent judiciary, definitely. That means that laws that are supposed to protect journalists are either not enforced or they're implemented um, in the in the way that the party the ruling party wants them to be implemented and you know you have yeah you have political parties that that have taken over civil society organizations i mean civil society organizations like the journalists syndicate that is a government funded body that was set up to defend journalists rights and but that because of the way that political parties have taken over those civil society organizations that leaves reporters unprotected. My dear friend, um, Kamal Chomani, luckily, for example, has managed to leave Kurdistan just right before it became dangerous for him to stay. He left Iraqi Kurdistan following death threats and an attempt to arrest him in March 2018. And uh, he now lives in Hamburg here in Germany and works as a freelance journalist here. So in a lot of ways, um, it's, a, it's a privilege to be working as a journalist in a country that guarantees my safety, you know, while doing my work. Well, it's, it's um, I thought, I thought I've, one of the things I've always had as a kid, even now, I have a lot of respects for journalists, mainly because it's one of those, it's, it's, it's an occupation where sometimes you're literally putting your life on the line to tell people the truth. Um, and for me, and I, I put something on my Instagram yesterday, I am more, I'm more willing to speak the truth than me hurting someone's feelings. And I think if someone is doing the right thing and using 
their pen and paper to tell people about the truth and about corruption and about what is happening in the world. I always have a great amount of respect for that because they're literally sometimes putting their life on the line, especially when you're in countries where journalists don't have rights and freedoms or there's no freedom of press or there's no freedom of speech. And they're still writing these articles because I I believe they're trying or want to make their country a better place. And sometimes people can't pick up a gun and fight. There are people who can do that. And there's some people who can just write and let people know their stories and let people know what is happening within their environment. Um, so for me, for journalism and journalists, there's always been a, I have a greater amount of respect for them. I couldn't do it. I'm not the great person with a pen and paper. I'm a talker. I'm always talking about something. But it's great to, for me to read these things and get this information to educate myself and for people who haven't read these 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 stories and stuff and tell them about it. Sharman, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the episode today. My final question for you is, what gives you hope for the future? This current generation. <laughs> I feel like this current generation has forced everyone to check their language to check their privilege <laughs> to check their rights and i i do feel like um because of you know the 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 passion and because of the determinants i just they're very determination if like a lot of young people right now to change the world the demand the change um happens that to demand protection for people who have been oppressed who have been ignored who have been treated very very um very bad i feel like this current generation just yeah just just makes me feel so so good in a lot of ways you know they 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 make me check my privilege they make me check whatever i uh, I choose to say sometimes, you know, they make me check, for example, you know, shows that I used to love watching and, you know, that, 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 I, that I thought were unproblematic. And then I found out later on, I was like, hmm, no, actually, they didn't have one black character in it. Why not? You know, they make me re, um, yeah, re-evaluate my relationship with everything that's kind of... Um, that's kind of influenced me as a person and i'm very very grateful for that so i that gives me hope for the future for sure Nojan Akbar is a feminist advocate and author from Afghanistan. She has worked with several Afghan and global organizations, focusing on women's empowerment and ending gender-based violence, and led nationwide campaigns and protests in defense of human rights. She currently runs Free Women Writers, a volunteer collective of activists and writers in Afghanistan and the diaspora activating for gender equality and social justice, where she's published two books, Daughters of Rabia and You're Not Alone, a booklet for Afghan women facing violence at home. Norjahan has been recognized for her efforts for gender equality at home and internationally and published on Al Jazeera and the New York Times, amongst other outlets. She was Glamour Magazine's College Woman of the Year in 2013 and featured on Forbes Women Changing the World, Fast Company's League of Extraordinary Women and the Daily Beast Women Who Shake the World's List. Noor Jahan, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much, Amal. It's lovely to be on the podcast. So you founded the Free Women Writers Scheme in Afghanistan. Can you tell us about the organization and how did it come about? So the, the 
process of creating Freeman Writers was a very organic process. We didn't even think that it was going to be a full-on organization. And we actually have a name in Afghanistan that's different than the global name, which is Dukharan Raba, which means uh, Daughters of Raba. And Raba was a ninth century poet known as the first woman poet of Afghanistan who was uh, actually killed for writing poetry and for falling in love and for questioning the social structures that existed in her community at the time. And uh, the reason we named our group, our, uh, our collective Dukhtaran Raba is because even today, women face a variety of obstacles for speaking out and for writing. And it's global, right? It's not just an Afghanistan. Whether it is, you know, an Afghan woman who is in uh, Kabul or Mazar Sharif and her parents are mad at her for writing poetry and throw her notebook away, which has happened. Some of our writers have written about this. Or it's a woman in the U.S. who's writing about racial inequity or writing about sexism or rape culture and is getting threatened on social media. We have seen that there is such a visceral reaction to women writing their opinions and their own experiences, their lived experiences. And at the time in 2013, when we started the Kharan Raba, there wasn't such a platform for women in Afghanistan, where they could just come and it would be a communal blog where they could come and write their uh, their stories and poetry and journey journal entries and really where um, the main goal was not to create like incredible writing or literature that's groundbreaking, but rather to talk about our issues in a way that's accessible to our people and to tell our stories in a way that's healing to us. So it was two-pronged, which was writing as healing and writing as advocacy, how our stories can be catalysts for change, really. So it was a friend of mine and I, we were walking in Kabul. It was a very hot summer day. Kabul summer days are notorious. And we saw a lot of little kids selling books on the streets, which is a site that you will see normally in Kabul. And um, we were curious, we bought some of the books and read through them, and they were incredibly misogynistic. These books were written by so-called religious leaders who were clearly weaponizing religion to silence women and control women's social behavior. There were books like Eight Kinds of Women Who Go to Hell, and, you know, the eight women who disobey their husbands, women who show their hair, women who speak loudly or laugh loudly. And these were full books that were dedicated to basically this denigrating women and our dignity. And they were so affordable. They were like 10 Fs, 20 Fs. Um, and we were like, wait, why isn't there a book telling our side of this, like women's voices and women's stories and our, our inner dreams and thoughts? that's as accessible. So we decided to put a call to action and ask our friends to submit articles and we had a book. And the book was distributed in eight different provinces around the country. Um, it was taken to schools, universities, libraries, just free of charge. Um, I paid for it myself. And then we were like, you know, we have run out of copies of the book. Let's put it on Facebook because young Afghans spend a lot of time on Facebook. And we did, and people thought that that meant that we wanted to publish their writings too. So 
a lot of women started sending us stories and articles and poetry, and it became a living blog. And five years later, it's in Farsi and Pashto and Uzbeki occasionally. And also we have an English translated website, which is the freewomenwriters.org website. Oh, wow, that's an incredible story. So just posting something on Facebook of a story that you'd written, people thought that was the opportunity to send you their stories to put stuff out. That is amazing. How long have you been running this for? Since uh, I've been running Room and Writers since 2013. Oh, wow. That, that is incredible. That is really, really incredible. One of the things that sets us apart is that we are an all-volunteer group. And it's a good thing and a bad thing. And the great thing about it is that we don't rely on foreign funding for our work, like so many women's rights organizations in Afghanistan do, because there isn't enough funding within the country. So what happens is uh, non-governmental organizations and NGOs and civil rights organizations uh, become dependent on funding from the U.S. Embassy, the British Embassy, you know, different uh, foreign governments, basically, for their work. And we noticed that, you know, that's great. Some of these organizations do incredible work, but who pays for your lunch gets to decide what you talk about during that lunch. And we said, you know, this means that we won't take money from governments, we will only depend on small donations from our own people, but also feminists around the world. And that's a small amount of money we raise, maybe like $2,000 or $3,000 a year. But it means we can keep our website going, we can occasionally support a woman to go to school, we can continue doing our work on social media, and continue being independent. And that was incredibly important to me. So you've just mentioned by creating this, have you had any pushback from anyone in Afghanistan um, when you first started or even it's now? It's weekly. I mean, uh, whenever you're, you, you hear a woman or any marginalized person, for that matter, uh, speak out against the status quo, there's going to be pushback. So sometimes that pushback is a way to start a conversation, right? Sometimes you, for example, we recently wrote an article about a religious leader who was killed who obviously shouldn't have been killed in, in a terrorist attack. We definitely condemn terrorist attacks. But, you know, this religious leader had a very complex legacy, among which was that he had defended older men marrying younger women, girls even. He had defended the murder of a woman, the mob lynching of a woman in Kabul. Of course, he had also had speeches that were about peace and about not being extremists. But this was a complex person who was clearly had a blind side with gender, right? And women's rights. And we wrote about this. We wrote exactly about this nuance that, you know, it's the horrible that this person was killed in this way. Um, and, you know, like, obviously, we need an end to terror attacks in Afghanistan. But we cannot lionize this person and create him, create a mythology around him that he was this great, amazing person with no flaws, where clearly he made these irredeemable mistakes um, that violated the rights of women. And, you know, from comments that were um, opposing us with some logic, to uh, full-on death threats, we received all of it, you know? And to me, that just means that we are moving the conversation forward. If you say things on every comment that every response you get is, this is amazing, great job, you all, then you're not really saying anything new. You're not rocking the boat. And if you live in an oppressive society, it's your moral duty to be rocking the boat.
to be creating good trouble, as Representative John Lewis in the U.S. would say. So we've just learned how Free Women Writers came about through you writing a story on Facebook and then people then sending you their stories and you now putting it out there and how it's financed and how you guys, even though you have full-time jobs, you're still trying to put the best content out there. For budding writers and for other people who just want to write or just want to tell their stories, doing what you do can sometimes be a little bit difficult to achieve that. What would be your recommendations to these individuals to try and do it, even though sometimes it might be a little bit difficult? age-old writing advice is to write about what you know. And I think that is so much depth in that advice. Write about your own life. The world is so complex and so big, and there are so many problems. What will make a difference is your story. And you might think you don't have an important story to tell, but if you think about it deeply, you will find nuances in your own story and questions and answers in your own story that will be helpful to other people. I would say... If possible, avoid writing about other marginalized people. If you have the opportunity, give them their platform to write about themselves. Um, And I think that's important because um, we don't need to be saviors. We need to champion one another. And there's a really big difference between those things. We should work in solidarity with each other. Um, and then I would say be be fearless. Like I have writings that I wrote like six, seven years ago that I read now and I just cringe and I'm like, oh my God, there are so many run-on sentences and fragments. What was I thinking? And I don't delete them because that's me. That's my growth. And then I hear it today. And now when I write, sometimes I'm fearful. I'm like, am I going to look at this in 10 years and be like, she was such an idiot. Um, and maybe I will. And how amazing is that, that I will have grown so much to see the shortcomings of what I did now. How does the media play a role in protecting women? How has that been effective in helping those that need it the most? Mm. Um, Well, in my home country of Afghanistan, I think the media has really pushed the conversation forward on women. Um, And that's largely because of the brave women journalists who are risking their lives to report today. Uh, And I don't mean, it's not an exaggeration when I say risking their lives. Countless women journalists have been killed in Afghanistan. They've been assassinated by the Taliban. They've been attacked by local warlords and strong men who oppose the truth. Um, But still, women journalists like Faranos Frutan um, are out there and they're fighting and they're telling women's stories, but everybody's stories. And they're really... um, making it normal and mainstream for people to see a woman on TV, to see a woman and a woman in a protective vest out in the battlefield, to see a woman in the post of uh, a terrorist attack reporting on what happened, um, and to really mark public spaces as women's spaces too, that women have every right to be in these literal um, public spaces, but also in the metaphorical public spaces of these conversations of peace and security and terrorism and human rights. That's something that is really interesting, having safe spaces for women, I think is something that should be at, at the top of everyone's list. I can only talk from what we're doing at work where we wanted to have a safe space to talk about issues that are happening now with racism and stuff like that and having safe spaces for people to talk about that where they don't feel like when they have a conversation with me or anyone in an organisation we're attacking them because they've said something or done something wrong. I think having safe spaces for women is 
an absolute great idea where they can talk about stuff that I would never know what they're going through. I'm not a woman. I can never tell a woman what they're going through and why they shouldn't be going through that. That's not my space. I should never be there. But I think it would be nice to be in a space where I can just sit there and listen and just hear what going through their minds and what they go through on a day-to-day basis when when you've when you've said everything you say then i can maybe ask the question how do you want to go about this or how can we collaborate this but i do think there should be more safe spaces on online as well for women to be able to express their thoughts and say whatever what they want to say yeah but also you know the internet kind of gives people this ability to say things without consequence Mm. my test says would you say that to somebody's face in person yeah if you wouldn't, yeah. don't say it on, on the internet. Yeah. People are still people. Even if you just see their little emoticons and their names, mm. their avatars and their names, they're still full human beings deserving yeah. respect. I totally agree. And when I do go online and I do comment on someone's post, my first thought is if I'm saying this to you, then I'll be able to say it to your face. If I can't say it to your face, I will not say it online. And that should be at the forefront of anyone's mind before they start commenting on anyone's post on social media. It, it can get heated on there and you don't want to start saying stuff, especially now when so many corporations and so many people can see and they investigate. Even when you're going for a job, they check your Facebook, they check your Instagram and stuff like that to see what you've said and what you've reposted and stuff like that. But I think that should be everyone's number one rule is if you can't say to someone's face, just don't say it. Just keep quiet. Keep it to yourself and just move on. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. I just have one more question. What are you hopeful for for the future? I love this question. A lot of things give me hope. Um, Young people fighting for change gives me hope. Um, Protesters on the streets expressing their rage with the incredible, insidious um, violence against black bodies and lives gives me give me give me hope. Um, young women, honestly, you all give me so much hope. I see young women on social media and in my real life saying such brave things and sometimes being just rude. And I love it because women never get to be rude. We never get to be righteously angry. We never get to be Whenever we are angry, we are angry feminists. Even if you're a victim of rape or violence or discrimination, you're supposed to be agreeable and nice and sweet and cute. Um, And young women are saying, fuck that. We don't need to adhere to these patriarchal notions of what's a good woman. We can redefine what a good woman is. And they give me so much hope including my own younger sister, these women who are pushing the boundaries, who are pushing their communities, their families, their moms, their dads to be more open to women's liberation, give me a lot of, a lot of hope. Um, and honestly, my uh, immigrant community in the US gives me hope. Afro-Americans are having conversations that we have never had before. We're talking about Black Lives Matter. We're talking about LGBTQI rights. We're talking about... Um, social economic inequality in a way that we haven't ever because we were afraid for our lives um and i'm i'm proud of us for being brave and opening these conversations unfortunately this is the last episode for this series of the global challenges podcast i'd like to say a big thank you to f hirsch bill browder sham jaff and nojahan akbar 
for taking part in this week's episode. I'd also like to thank all the ambassadors and counsellors who took part in the previous episodes as well. Kate Arbuthnot and I would like to thank our wonderful interviewers who gave us their time to record these interviews, Jemima Lover, James DeCosta, Carlos Ghiacce and Liv Apanot. We would like to thank co-founder of Wine and World, Kate Robertson, for recording all the amazing intros you hear at the start of every episode. Also, the Wine and World team for helping us put this all together. Without their help and input, we wouldn't have had anyone to interview. So thank you to Mara Silvestri, Subir Ali, Josh Savory, Anna Taylor, Arietta Valmas and Liam Fairweather. Thank you also to James Kahn for the amazing instrumentals you can hear right now in the background. And finally, I would like to thank Kate Abelot for coming up with the idea and producing the episode alongside myself. Thank you all for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have.